when we were sitting there waiting for the ambulance to come and things and my companion was on the phone I remember you know we were looking around and evaluating the situation and I saw that I had been stabbed through the middle of my hand um and so I had cuts on both sides through my palm and you might think that that would be alarming you know to look down and see that not anyone's first choice but it actually brought me so much peace as I was just sitting there and I instantly thought of Jesus Christ and I thought of you know similar marks in his hands um and obviously his are in incredibly greater than mine but I just felt some sort of you know small connection uh, he was aware of me and I knew that I was going to be okay you know that it, it was his purpose it was kind of Heavenly Father's sign that like you know everything's going to be okay and you know this is going to be used to bring other people to Jesus Christ um, and as I related earlier that kind of you know drew me through my experience in the hospital always relying on the atonement to carry me when I literally physically couldn't take away the pain, you know, when I needed to walk and I couldn't move my legs. He helped me walk. He carried me through the pain. Um, he helped me sleep, you know, like all of these things is just a very, very real power of the atonement that came into my life. While working on the cultural hall, there are a lot of times that we'll talk about a story in articles of news, you know, the episodes that we do on Monday. And I'll think, man, I've got to remember to get in touch with this person. I want to find out more about the story. I want to get behind the scenes. I want to, you know, I just want more than what we would mention in just the brief mention of the article. And today's episode is 100% that. I had to wait and I had to be patient uh, until it was going to be uh, opportune time for me to visit with Lauren Willardson. Now, here's the deal. I am going to let you discover why I would be visiting with her uh, in real time. I'm not going to spoil it right now. Hashtag no spoilers. I just want to tell you thank you so much for listening to all of the episodes, uh, but especially this episode of The Cultural Hall. If you have not subscribed yet, please, 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 and thank you. Uh, take a second and uh, smash, as the kids say, that subscribe button so you don't miss a single moment. And this holiday season, planning on doing a lot of great episodes to help boost our faith, especially in a rough year for a lot of people, a hard year for others. And some people who just are like, what? What year? What are you talking about? What even is that is? We've got some episodes for you as well. Thank you and enjoy this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I'm excited because I'm joined by Lauren Willardson. Now, maybe that name sounds familiar to you, or maybe you're just like, I don't know, sounds like a name. I wonder who this person is going to be. I will tell you this, Lauren Willardson, who is joining me in this episode of The Cultural Hall, uh, you have made me wait not more than most, but the only person that has made me wait longer to interview them is Brandon Flowers. So you are in amazing company. Brandon Flowers, obviously, being the lead singer of The Killers. So I'm glad to have you here and finally to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> now, uh, you guys are probably thinking, well, geez, you, you put her in the likes of uh, Brandon Flowers from The Killers. This has got to be, is she a major movie actress? Is she, uh, you know, uh, the lead singer of a, a certain band? No, none of those things. Um, but has quite an interesting story, and I don't want to spoil it completely yet. I would love to know um, just a little bit about you before we get into your story and why we would be chatting today. Um, I will say that your your story um, revolves around serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What made you decide that you wanted to do that? Um, honestly, it was kind of something that I wanted to do my entire life because of my dad. He served an incredible mission and he always taught us the importance of going on a mission and that it was, 
you know, our duty. But as I got older and older, it was more not something I felt like compelled to do, but something I wanted to do because I developed my own love for Jesus Christ and my own relationship with him. And I knew that the only way to show that love fully was to serve a mission. Uh, give me an idea about uh, dad. Where did he serve and, and brothers and sisters and what that sort of home influence was like? So my dad served in what is now the Paris-France mission. Hmm. Back in the day, it took it didn't actually include Paris, but it was just outside of Paris um, with southern France and then also in Belgium and Luxembourg. Um, so he spoke French. So I learned French my whole life. Then I actually got called Spanish speaking, yeah, which is kind yeah, of fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and probably some of that sort of romanticizing the idea of a mission where, you know, everyone, but it may be, this is stereotypical, of course, but every woman dreams of going at least one time to magically magical Paris, France and doing all right. those things. Was that part of it for you, maybe? Um, I mean, maybe there's definitely a part of me, there's a part of everyone that wants to go on a, a really exciting like foreign mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew when I opened my call that it was where I was supposed to go and I got a very strong spiritual confirmation. So. Awesome. Awesome. Now, are you the first in your family to have served a mission? I mean, your dad obviously my- did. Yeah. I was the first one of my siblings. I have five siblings and I'm the first to serve. And are you the oldest then? I'm the second oldest. My oldest sister is married. Okay. Okay. So she went that way, went that mission. And you said, listen, I'm going this way. I'm going to serve a mission. So you open a call. We all recognize that it isn't that you got called to Paris, France. Uh, Tell us about what that was like. Um, Well, I opened my call and I got called to the Texas Houston mission, Spanish speaking. Um, and honestly, I thought that I would be super bummed if I went stateside, mm-hmm. but I wasn't at all. I was just like, you know, this is where God wants me to go. And this is, this is my place. And I just felt super at peace with it. And so I was really grateful for that consolation. And then, you know, everything just kind of played out from there. I never thought I would go to Texas. I never, ever thought Spanish speaking, <laughs> all of my relatives were shocked, <laughs> but you know, God has a bigger purpose. Was it a thing? Let me ask you, because so I went stateside as well. I went to Cleveland and uh, that's in Ohio. You, obviously, you open it up and you're like, Cleveland, Ohio, that's not the Austria like one of my college roommates had. And it's not the, you know, Australia like another one of my college roommates had. It's very close. It's very United States. You said you got that that confirmation. Did it come immediately or did it take a while? And what, what did it feel like? Um, it was just immediately just kind of a piece that I never questioned if this was really where I was supposed to go or I was like, why did they call me here? Like, I don't want to go there. There was no like level of disappointment, I guess, when I opened my call. Yeah. So Houston, I mean, there's a certain thing about Texas. We always joke around that everybody from Texas, you know, because they won't stop talking about Texas, right? Uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, so how long ago did you uh, did you serve then in Texas? When did you when did you get the call and when did you go? I got the call, let's see, I think March 3rd of this year. Okay. And then I left. I started my NPC experience on May 5th. I got to Texas on June 17th. Um, and then I got back from the hospital in Texas after everything happened on, let's see, like the end of August, beginning of September-ish. So I've been home for a couple months. So people hear hospital and they go, wait, what? What's this all about? Oh, we're not getting there yet. I'd be curious because you say... Okay. March. No, you're fine. I love the tease about it. You're t- you talk about March of 2020. And if people can remember 20 years ago, which is how long it feels that March of 2020 was like you get you get your call right as as COVID is essentially being really recognized fully what it is isn't for the state. So so what was that like? Well, I don't know. It was really interesting because that was like when everything was getting shut down, obviously it was the very, very, very beginning of COVID. No one really knew what it was or what was happening. Um, No one knew 
if they're going to get to go to their mission or not. And part of me, when I opened Texas, I just realized like, maybe this is because of COVID because we didn't know that missionaries were going to get sent back and reassigned yet. But I just kind of had a thought like, Hey, I bet because of COVID, a lot of people that are serving foreign won't even get to like end up going. And so I was grateful that being stateside allowed me to be able to serve on time and, you know, have my planned mission. And I think that Heavenly Father knew obviously what was going to come with COVID and he, you know, he'd planned that out for me, but it was just awesome. It was definitely a hard decision because you had, so all of the missionaries that went out when I went out got to choose if they wanted to go on time or wait um, 12 to 18 months to serve a regular mission, yeah. you know, like and she's air quoting a regular because I mean, any mission is a regular mission as we try and break down air- the stereotypes of, you know, a real mission or, a, you know, you didn't serve a complete mission, all those things. We're trying to abolish those things. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so you just have the option to wait if you don't want to do quarantine and things like that. But I just felt really strongly that it, you know, this is the purpose for which we've been called. And I think my generation was specifically prepared to be missionaries during quarantine. And so I just accepted the call and we saw what happened. So. so let me ask you this about that. Then you start your MTC experience on the on the 5th of May. When you say it like that, that makes me think that maybe you did the home MTC experience. I did. Yeah. At that point, the MTCs were just barely, barely getting shut down like weeks before I went in. And so I was one of the first groups in the online MTC. And and being the first of anything is difficult. What what did they sort of discover as you guys were going through that MTC experience? And, and what was the value of, of doing that? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, my experience with the online MTC is different than most because I went through the Mexico online MTC. Oh. So from everything that I've heard, the... Provo MTC online is a lot more organized than what I experienced in the Mexico MTC online. Give, give, me, an I, give me an idea what you mean. Well, just we could do workshops like through the Provo MTC, for example. Um, and those were always like, you know, very professional. They had like the speaker and the cameras and the lighting and, you know, the director and everything is very like polished. Um, but Mexico MTC is just very, very real. You yeah. know, it's your teacher sitting in her house with her phone with like her dog barking and the mariachi band in the background while you're trying to like (laughs) hear the best you can to try and learn Spanish. And and meanwhile, probably speaking Spanish the entire time and not, you know, onboarding you being like, no, I don't understand what you're saying. They just are speaking Spanish and being like, catch up, Sister Willardson. (laughs) And then they get a, I don't even know, like a storm in Mexico and their power goes out and then our class is just over randomly for the day. There's all sorts of things. Is she all right? Is everything okay with Hermana, you know, whatever her name is? Exactly. Uh, Now, what was that like being able to stay home? Because for me, uh, the hardest part of the MTC experience was, uh, although not the first time away from home for me, I went to a year of school. It was very different because it was so regimented from the time that we got up. We had only a certain amount of time to do this. Then we would be in classes for 12 to 14 hours, and you only had so much time to do all that. But it seems to me... I'm going to use the word lax only because it seemed a little bit easier on a schedule than having that regimented and staying away from parents. Did you did you find that to be the case? Um, in some places, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, the MTC online, if you ask anyone that's done it, is very difficult. You know, it's very taxing to be a missionary and to try and live that lifestyle, but to do it alone. Yeah. When you see your doing fun things without you that you're not allowed to do. Or, you know, whatever it may be, you're doing it all by yourself. You don't have the support of companions and like the, you know, the camaraderie that comes from the MTC. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I don't think I would have changed my experience. Um, there are things you miss out on. You don't get to 
you know, be in the MTC. I didn't get to go to Mexico like I wanted. I didn't get to, you know, be in the MTC choir or taste the orange juice that everyone says you're not supposed to have, you know, like whatever it is. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it was an incredible experience for me because I got to create like my own little like temple MTC in my home. Mm. And so I have a very spiritual connection now with my home and with my family. Um, and so at the point that I left after being a missionary in our home for two months, we were closer as a family. We'd had some very like spiritual experiences. I'd already had opportunities to teach like investigators in my ward. So everyone told me I was more prepared. You know, there were just so many like blessings that came out of it as well. I really like that, um, that idea of like making the, the your home more sacred. If, 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 it, if you were willing to share, I would be curious as to maybe one or a couple of those ways where you were able to, to, to make that home a more sacred space to be able to commune with God. No, of course. Um, Part of it was just, you know, having the spirit in the home always, because when you have a missionary in your home, it feels different. You know, there's someone that's called as a representative of Jesus Christ. And so I think my siblings recognize that my parents recognize that. Um, so just the level of, you know, there's always going to be some things that happen with five kids in a house. <laughs> but um, when there's a missionary in the home, the spirit was definitely different. Um, we tried to be kinder to each other. We tried to do more spiritual activities together. You know, there wasn't as much technology time, different things like that. And then we just tried, you know, to pull out spiritual decorations to make me feel like I was an MTC or to, you know, spend more time studying the scriptures or whatever it may be. You know, we just really made our home like a more spiritually focused place. I'm hoping that at some point you got a really oversized map and your family took a picture of you pointing to Texas on the map. If that di- if that didn't happen, it needed to. Oh, it definitely happened. We got probably <laughs> what we needed. So funny. Uh, and then you you have this opportunity to then go to Texas, and I'm sure your family is like, "Oh man, we are closer now than we maybe ever have been," or or certainly this feeling. And and in some ways, they're like, "Oh no, we really want this experience to be able to stay, but it's time for you to go." What 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 was that experience like when you were? leaving your home to go to texas right um you definitely don't get the little like barrier period of like i'm gone but i'm not really gone when you're in the mtc mm-hmm. um but at the same time it made it a lot like more tender i think like it was really hard to say goodbye but i had kind of prepared myself for it because an online mtc you don't get to see your family as much as you think you would mm-hmm. like you're still in classes for like 12 hours a day and you're just not really seeing your family mm-hmm. so that kind of prepped me but i was still grateful for the extra time to create you know, family bonds with them, even if it made it harder to say goodbye. Well, and a, a particularly unique experience too for the s- siblings that are younger than yours, uh, than you rather, to be able to see what it's like to be a missionary. Whereas, you know, my younger brothers than me would have no idea. I mean, I certainly told them, yeah, you eat way too much food and then you get cramped in a room with a bunch of guys like they, they won't know that experience, but they don't get to know all the sweet things like that, that you described that you're experiencing. Yeah. yeah. So, So uh, I want to take a break real quick. And when we come back in the second block, I want to talk about uh, the touchdown in Houston. Uh, You get off the plane and then start your mission serving there. And as we continue to find out more about Sister Willardson and her story, we'll come back and we'll do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. 
Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember that if you are a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, you get to hear all of these episodes beforehand. You get to know what's going on behind the scenes. Sometimes I do open chats where I chat with folks. Uh, things that you do not get to see if you are not a Patreon saint. How do you become a Patreon saint, you ask? You can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall and make a donation of 3 5 or $10 a month. We'd love to have you do that and help financially support all the work that we we do here. And do not forget that the way that we share that information with you as a Patreon saint is you get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group that all the other Patreon saints are a part of. So check that out. Patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Hey, this is Dan the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. It's our ultra-mega back-to-school blowout sale. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars of ultra-high-quality laptops and desktops on sale for up to 50% off the original prices. We've got demos, scratch and dents, trade-ins, and funny colored computers. It's crazy. Remember, you get a lifetime service guarantee on any PC Laptops brand computer. That means if you mess up your Windows or you get a virus or spyware, it's covered forever. Got an old yucky computer? No problem. We'll take it in on trade and we'll transfer all your pictures, music, and all your stuff to your PC Laptops computer for free. When you get your computer from PC Laptops, we'll make sure you're taken care of for a lifetime. To make it impossible to resist, we're doing 12 months special financing on any PC Laptops desktop or laptop computer. Have I lost my mind? Get into any one of our locations right now or check us out at PCLaptops.com. PC laptops where computers start at $7.99. PC laptops, we love you. Lauren, Sister Willardson, the plane lands in Houston. You've said goodbye to your old life. Home MTC is behind you. What are you thinking as you land there in the great state of Texas? Just this is my mission. I'm ready to start. Let's go. Had you ever been to Texas before? I have not, no. Yeah. Any idea like what was your sort of expectation uh going in? Any, um, any sort I of thought thoughts, yeah. Boys, you know, cowboy hats, boots, southern uh, accent, southern food, you know, the uh -huh. things you hear. And, and did you did you experience that when you landed? Um, Definitely a little bit. I was in very, very heavy, like, Hispanic areas as a, a Hispanic missionary. And so didn't see as much of that for sure. My area was more like a mini Mexico feel than like a cowboy southern feel. Mm -hmm. But I definitely, when you go to Walmart, you can see all the... Like guys walking around in their big boots and their cowboy hats and things. So, so you get there and you get assigned to your area. Tell me about like first companion and what you thought the work would look like, what it actually was. Um, so my first companion, I actually only ever had one companion there, but she was amazing. She was just super fun, you know, super good. She'd been out for almost a year. Um, and the work was just, it was super busy. Like everyone thinks that quarantine, like is slowing the missionaries down or things, but we had more lessons. She said that she's ever taught in her entire mission, hmm. like every single day, just because, you know, in a regular missionary day, you'd 
like go out maybe and do one lesson and then have lunch and have to drive to the next appointment, have another lesson then drive back for dinner and you're done, you know, Mm -hmm. but we could just sit down in our chairs and just have seven lessons, like blocked out 30 minutes at a time, you know, and just take four or five hours. And at the end of the day, we've had a bunch of lessons. So we were always busy, always productive. It was good. So your experience in teaching those, uh, those lessons, those lessons, those discussions, that was all virtual. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, uh, I know just recently that the church has sent out um, sort of the explanation and detailed about, like, if I live in Utah, but I have a friend in Pennsylvania, and I want them to be taught by the missionaries, that I can refer the Pennsylvania missionaries, but then I can be a part of that Zoom or whatever technology the missionaries use discussion. Was that the case when you were serving? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could have like people join in our Zoom chats. And that's one of the reasons why Zoom is very effective. And I don't think the church will ever, you know, fully remove themselves from that Um, just because it's more time effective, you know, with the driving and things, but also we could have friends and even like members come on lessons super easy because all we have to do is send them the Zoom link or the the messenger chat or whatever it is. And they just hop on right away. Mm. And there's no like picking up the member, driving to their house, having someone cancel, you know? Yeah. And there, there's so many missionaries that are screaming right now going, she never had to knock a door. She doesn't know what it's like to knock doors for seven I, hours. It's, uh, it's, it's a unique experience. I don't know that I would say that you're missing out very much. <laughs> uh, so, so you're there. Um, you mentioned that there were a lot of discussions being taught in that particular um, part of the Houston mission, that being the Spanish speaking were a lot of people finding the the faith and and was was there kind of a common thread with a lot of those folks? Yeah, we had almost every single person we taught was already religious. So it was just a matter of if they were looking for a deeper level of religion in their life or if they were content with the religion they already had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had tons and tons of people that wanted to meet with us, which is why we we're always busy. But then you have to sort out between the people that want to talk to you. You'll find in Texas, everyone wants to talk about Jesus. Uh-huh. So there's people that talk to you just because they want to have an excuse to talk about Jesus and be spiritual, especially when their church is closed with COVID. We're like replacement church. Oh, yeah. I hadn't even considered yep. that. Like a Bible study just for people who are exactly. looking for that craving. Yeah, okay. They're like, we don't want to come to your church, but we like your book about Jesus and we'll come talk with you because I can't go to church. And then there's the people that really are looking for something more. They're like, I'm concerned. I lost my job. You know, my dad has COVID, whatever it is. And they're, you know, really looking for that extra hope. And so we had an opportunity to give that to them. So were there people then in that time, because if I'm following timeline right, I want to say you kind of get to Texas late June, early July, and then you sort of come home late August, 1st of September-ish times. So were there- Like middle, like September is when I was there, yeah. Okay. Were there people that uh, that you taught that ended up joining the church then? Mm-hmm, there were. That's awesome. Tell me, tell me about one of those families or individuals. Yeah, one of my favorite um, people that we taught was Noemi. She was so, so golden and prepared. So actually, the way we found her was from a referral from another recent convert. There was this guy named Manuel, and he was baptized just before I got there. Hmm. And he is just fiery. He gave us referrals like every single week. He's (laughs) like, call my friend in Guatemala. And we do like Zoom lessons with them. Call my friend in, you know, Mexico. Like I've got this friend over in like Honduras, like whatever it is. Um, And then he had one friend that actually lived in our area. And so we contacted her and went over and dropped off a Book of Mormon. She was super hesitant and everything. Um, but we kind of slowly worked in with her. And she had, you know, some troubles that made her more interested in the gospel, which was incredible. And after, I think, two weeks, we set a baptismal day with her. And she ended up being baptized. And Manuel, the other convert, got to actually baptize her. Oh, cool. Oh, that's awesome. When you when you see those people that get taught most recently be 
furthering the work, not only for referrals, but actually being able to perform the ordinances or, or being a part of that in some way. That's that's really awesome. It was incredible. So I think we've teased people for long enough about why. I mean, this is this, this for me. I'll be honest with you. The the idea of the um, pandemic missionary, which is what I've sort of termed it as, like it, it's curious enough for me to to want to know what home MTC is like, and you know what it would be like to not be able to go tracting or some of those typical missionary activities. So already we could we could shut this down right now, Lauren, and and I would be satisfied. Uh, I'm not going to do that though. I, <laughs> Uh, I I want to know and pick up your story then um, wherever you would like. Um, you're you're in Houston. You're serving as a missionary. You're teaching people. They're they're finding God, uh, whether it's that they're converting or they're just having these conversations with you. And then things change a bit. Yep, they did indeed. Well, basically, what happened is August sixteenth at like four a.m. ish. Um, we had me and my companion and I. We lived alone. We had a man break into our apartment um, and started attacking us in our sleep, basically. And he was just stabbing us and attacking us. And we fought with him for about 15 minutes, um, just trying to get him to leave and to stay alive, basically. Um, And after that point, we kind of just begged him to leave. And he left and we called 911 and were sent to the hospital. Um, We called our mission president and everything. And our mission president came to the hospital. I actually had to have emergency surgery. Um, right away as soon as I got there. And you're, so I you're, asked, go, you're going very fast through a lot of okay. details. So I'll let you kind of go through it this way. And then I have a bajillion, <laughs> I have a bajillion questions, but please. Yeah. Anyway, this is the, this is the abbreviated version of the story is I just had surgery. My president gave me a blessing and said everything would be okay. So I had surgery. Um, and then we were in the hospital for about eight days and then we were sent home. So yeah, so that's it. There we go. That's the episode, everybody. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> okay, so so some curious questions that that I certainly had around it, um, and, and I know that there's probably some sort of investigation that is either going on or there's court stuff around it. Is my assumption. So there may be some stuff that um, that you aren't able to answer, but. Uh, the the first question is is like is the neighborhood that you lived in was it a fairly safe neighborhood did things like this happen very often things like this definitely didn't happen super often but it was definitely a pretty sketchy area like you never don't hear like police sirens going ever really like you feel like you're kind of in a third world country yeah Had it, the- we kind of it, it wasn't very safe that's just a nice way to put it yeah had there been uh, other times. Because this is what about six weeks while you'd been there? Um, about nine weeks. About in. nine weeks. Were, had there been other times in that nine weeks that you uh, had served that you felt genuinely unsafe? Um, sometimes when you walk around apartment complexes, people would like follow us or things like that. Or we had people come and like, like knock on our door and sit outside our balcony, and we'd just be like locking the door, like in the middle of a lesson, like sorry, there's a dude outside. We're just gonna go lock all the doors and windows for a second, but. Mm-hmm. We always felt fairly protected, I would say. Yeah. And there's a certain sense of protection that you just kind of feel as a missionary anyway, whether it's a a real protection, you know, the promises that we'll be able to return safely and do the the Lord's work or some of this sort of false uh, protection that we sometimes feel where it's like, they can't get us. We're doing the (laughs) Lord's work. And it's like, "Mm, I don't know. I think that Lauren, (laughs) Lauren might have something else to say about that. I mean, you definitely... Um, 
you know, were harmed, injured in this whole thing. So so there had been instances where you um, had had felt unsafe. So then it's the middle of the night and you wake up, your companion wakes up. Like, is there banging that that guy gets in? Like, what does that scenario look like that he gets in? Yeah, so we didn't even hear him come in at all. Um, we woke up to him on top of us. Ugh. And, and I'm sure that in in some level too. I mean, we talk about a very violent and and again, I appreciate you being willing to to share this because I'm sure that there is some there is some element of trauma of re, sort of reliving this as you, as you talk about it. But but for um, in some way, I bet that there was probably some concern that it could be some sort of sexual attack, not necessarily just physical, where it's the middle of the night and someone's on top of you. Was that a consideration? Um. Not really. We honestly didn't consider that just because he had a knife. Oh. Um, and so we just thought it was attempted murder. We didn't really consider that till afterwards. And, and I mean, the vision of, of someone like going after two sister missionaries in the sleep, like I just I just can't fathom it. You're startled out of a, a complete sleep, right? Like you said your prayers in the best way and, and went to bed and doing all the things. And then the middle of the night, this guy is just willy nilly with this this knife going after the two of you. Like how what what did you guys do? You you mentioned you fought him off. Is that the initial instinct? Well, yeah, one hundred percent. Just you know, trying to get him off of you so that he didn't hit you in a bad place, kind of a thing. So we just got out of bed and started fighting. That's unreal. Scared to death. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, and just a, a adrenaline and all that. There's an interesting thing that you said that he's there for a long time and then you beg him to leave and then he does what like what was the what was the conversation like um well honestly this was after a point where so my companion had been hit in the head a lot of times and she was a little bit concussed uh. um and he was having a hard time so i was doing most of the like fighting trying to just get him off of her so that she didn't die um because she was having a really hard time just standing up or moving at all um and so at one point i just kind of struggled to get the knife from him um and we just ended up kind of on the floor facing him and he was kind of standing by the door and we just begged him like in Spanish and in English. We're like, just go, you've done enough. Like, look at us. We we're just bleeding all over the floor and everything. And he just kind of turned around and left. That's unreal. It, it, it is every mom or dad's nightmare for sending their yeah. kid uh, to, to go and, and serve a mission. And then, and then to think of the, what that scene probably looked like as well. You were stabbed, I think you said, seven times? I was stabbed nine times, nine and times. I have 30, um, like, scars after surgery and everything is done. And then your companion was stabbed equally? I think she was stabbed three times. Yeah. So, so just like you said, you know, what you, what you felt like was an attempted murder, I'm sure that this scene just looks just grotesque scary you're calling hopefully the hospital very first 911 this is what happened yep 911 <laughs> and, and and how do you describe that situation to, to the uh the dispatch like i don't i would just be like uh sleeping and then this happened or how what did that how did that all go down yeah well honestly i don't remember too much of it my companion made the phone call um, cause I had a lot of wounds that I was just trying to kind of bandage up and stop them from bleeding. Um, we were concerned that he was going to come back in and break in again, kind of finish the job kind of a thing. Um, but we just called them and we told them that we'd been stabbed and 
they made us answer a lot of questions before they would send someone but like 20 minutes later we're finally like please just send someone we're kind of bleeding to death oh my like, god and so then they sent someone and they came in and had to move furniture to get to me because my body had all frozen up so I couldn't move um and then me and my companion went in separate ambulances to the hospital did you think you were gonna die um I asked them if I was gonna die and they said not if we get everything done that we need to do and I was like okay (laughs) that's so scary so many times people will talk about these experiences and almost call them um like a divine intervention or like a heavenly experience. Was there anything like that for you either when he was there and how you were able to get rid of him or in route to the hospital or even afterward where you just, you fell closer to God maybe than you had before? Oh, 100%. It was a very sacred experience for me. And part of my life now is just like trying to feel worthy of the sacred experience Heavenly Father has given me. Hmm. Just trying to, you know, use it for his purposes because I think that it's an incredible experience and I felt the power of God so real in that room. You know, I know the angels were fighting with us. Um, And just from that to like the faith that he would preserve my life going into a life or death surgery um, without my parents, without knowing what was going to happen. There was a chance I could die in surgery, you know, but there was a greater chance I would die if I didn't do it. So just having to make that decision in a foreign state as a 19 year old um, to afterwards, I had to relearn how to do everything, how to sit up, how to walk, how to eat, you know, Mm. all these. And so I very much had to rely on the atonement of Jesus Christ to enable me through it. You know, it's a a unique perspective, which you have. I think that some people would be like, come on, God, I did the thing that you told me to do. Where's the protection? Where you, I mean, really, you sort of are smiling and laughing about that, but I I don't think that anyone listening to this story would begrudge you if you got angry, Mm -hmm. but you didn't. No, I think it was a blessing. I definitely, looking back, I can see all the ways I was prepared in my life to have this experience. Um, obviously God never wanted me to be hurt. He never yeah. wanted to have, he doesn't control our agency, but because someone was going to use our agency in this way, me and my companion both agree that he put us both there in that time because we are the ones that would survive and hopefully use our agency to make this into a good opportunity and good experience to bless others. Did you know the individual? Had you seen that person before? Mm, we had. So he lived in our complex actually. Mm. Um, and he was like our neighbor kind of across the street sort of thing. And we had given one of his family members that he lived with, who I guess they were apparently cousins. I don't know. They kind of lied about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But one of the relatives that he lived with, we'd talked to, and they'd said that they'd met with missionaries before. And we're like, oh, that's great. You know, like, he's like, yeah, I used to have a Book of Mormon. And we're like, no way. We can give you a Book of Mormon if you want again. So we had given them a Book of Mormon. You know, we talked to their kids. You know, we were very, like, friendly with them. We said hi to them every time we went out kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then... There's probably a certain amount of betrayal, or maybe not. I mean, I, I, you know, you certainly brought some light on some different perspectives that maybe I wouldn't have had. But, but a certain amount of wait a minute from being so friendly, so welcoming to these individuals in that household, only to have that be what comes in return. How do you deal? How do you deal with that? How do you trust people? Um, well, the individual that did it, we actually had only talked to like maybe once or twice. So I didn't feel like a lot of trust barriers were broken, but it was definitely like, you know, a forgiveness thing. And people ask me like how I'm able to forgive it, how I'm able to move on. And I honestly just say that it's the atonement of Jesus Christ. Like, I think that part of the enabling power of the atonement is the way that God prepares us to face our trials. Mm. Um, and I think that if you're doing everything you need to do every single day, just to try your very best to be like Jesus Christ. And when something hard like this happens, you'll have kind of a well to draw out of that you've stored up and you can draw out of that grace of Christ 
um, to forgive other people and to have the ability to do it when you don't think you'd be able to. Yeah. That's a that's a tremendous lesson and a hard pill I think for some people to swallow, right? I think that I think it, it's it's interesting for me as I see both the way that the the way that you speak about it, your your physical appearance uh, as we're talking on Zoom, but also to hear it in your voice that you very sincerely, you know, feel the things that you are saying. I don't think that that's the case for everyone. I think that there would be some people who would just be like, "I'm out, give up. Why did you do this?" Like there there's it it would be so much easier maybe in some ways to to just sort of turn against this but instead you've said you know what nope i know me and christ were on the same team we're figuring this out and 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 then it becomes a, a greater and deeper thing i want to take another break and um when we come back in the third block i know that you have written a little bit about your experience i'm going to ask you to share a little bit of that uh, also, there are a couple of phone calls that weren't to 911 that I'm sure took place on some at some point uh, to your mission president and also to your parents. And I would be curious what those experiences were like. So we'll come back. We'll do all of that and ask you the three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall back in the third block. I know you're shopping online and you're thinking, all right, what am I going to get my family? What am I going to get my spouse? What am I going to get my kids? It's Christmas time, essentially. I know I'm jumping that Thanksgiving gun for a lot of you, but I got to tell you about LDSBookstore.com. Why? They have 100% unique products for Latter-day Saints, including, are you ready for this? Have you always wanted a CTR ring in Elvish? They got it. How about a Christus Nightlight? You bet. They've got it. How about a plan of salvation kit? I actually don't know what a plan of salvation kit is, but you know what? They've got it. You can also get the Christus pendant necklace. That's a perfect gift for a mom, a young woman, a grandma. Uh, that's only $25, bucks, 24 dollars to be precise. You get free shipping on your orders that are over $50. Bucks. Uh, you get free weekly Come Follow Me printables from the folks over at LDSBookstore.com. Plus, they got great LDS Christmas ornaments, including, you knew it, the Christus, Angel Moroni, say goodbye Moroni, temples, and an entire 13-piece nativity set. Hop online, ldsbookstore.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, talking with Lauren Willardson uh, about now, sort of we come on the other side of it. Uh, certainly a, a misfortunate, unfortunate incident that occurred. You've chosen to take the... Um, the high road, the positive way of looking at it, the way that it could strengthen your faith and and draw you closer to Christ. But there are these questions like, hey, mom, can you talk for a minute? Uh, I need to tell you about what happened on my mission. Let's let's chat about how that phone call went. Um, so the point when I called my parents was just when I was about to go into surgery because I wanted their opinion, obviously, um, because the doctors told me it was a life or death surgery. And I said, can I get a second opinion? And they said, if you wait that long, you might die. Oh. Um, so there wasn't much chance. I just had to trust this guy that was in front of me telling me what was going on with my body. Uh -huh. Um, but no, I called my parents and one of the many miracles is that my call went through because my dad's phone was actually on silent. Hmm. Um, cause it was, you know, in the early morning and he puts it on silent when he goes to bed, but he apparently previously had gone in and made it. So the only call he gets through when he's on do not disturb is my phone call. Mm. Um, that was a miracle in and of itself, just that he was able to have that call because otherwise I wouldn't have gone to talk to them. But anyway, we explained the situation. And of course, like any parents, they were a little bit, you know, a little bit concerned, a little bit panicky. You can say um, frantic. Yeah. The doctors were very good and they talked to them and 
they recommended that I do the surgery and then they immediately, you know, bought plane tickets and flew out to be with me when I came out of surgery. Right. So at that point, when you called them right before surgery, this life or death surgery, um, they didn't have any idea that any of this had occurred. They did not know. And and so was I wonder, was the phone call like, mom, dad, I need to know if I need to have this life or death surgery. And they're like, wait, what happened? And you're like, there's no time for that. I just need to know if I should have this life or death surgery. Or were you able to sort of inform them what was going on? No, I just told them, you know, I was like, don't panic. You know, it's okay. I know this is not what you wanted to happen. But, you know, someone broke in and we were attacked in our sleep. But now we're at the hospital and this is, you know, what's going on. Yeah. You know how crazy that sounds, right? (laughs) (laughs) I've told the story a lot, so I'm getting good. But but like, dear mom, don't (laughs) panic. But behind a locked door while my companion and I were serving the Lord... Someone broke in and stabbed us. No, no, don't panic. I just need to know if I should have this life or death surgery. What do you guys think? Like, what are the odds here? They're telling me yes. I've only got a couple of seconds it's before we can. Yeah. Oh. And so you obviously did have the surgery and they, they fly out to be with you. Now, at what point uh, and what did the discussion look like when you called the mission president? Um, so the mission president I actually called before I called my parents. Hmm. Um, as soon as we got off the ambulance, they started doing emergency work on us to prepare me to go into surgery and to, you know, obviously close up some of the bigger problems that were at hand. Um, and so while I was laying there, I just kept being like, I need to call my mission president. I need to call my mission president. Like we're missionaries. We have this president. He needs to know that this happened. And they're all like, okay, okay. Like whatever. We're just like working on saving your life kind of a thing. And I didn't have like the consciousness really to like get into my phone and call him. And so anyway, at one point, a nurse was able to come over and she helped me get into my phone. And I called him and I was like, President, like we're in the hospital. And he's like, I'm on like, what happened? And I told him, he's like, what hospital are you in? And I was like, I don't know. I'll call you back later. <laughs> um, this is actually one of the many miracles right here is how they found the hospital because I didn't know what hospital we were in. And I don't know, like for some reason, the nurses had left me so I couldn't ask them. Um, so I had all these people, like our state president was texting me, our bishop was texting me, like, everyone's like, what hospital are you in? Where are you? Like, what happened? Because I had just given them just enough information to, like, let them know. And then I, like, kind of had to hang up because they were going to do a procedure on me. Sure. Um, so I was obviously very concerned. Not the nicest thing to do to your mission president. Yeah. Um, although, although, to be fair, I don't know that you were logically thinking through everything. And that's perfectly no. permissible, given the situation. Thank you. You're welcome. No. My president and his wife actually that morning for whatever reason had gotten up earlier than usual and they were all ready to go and everything. And so when they got that phone call, they're like, we don't know where she is, but they just said a prayer and they got in their car and started driving and they were just driving around Texas. They were a brand new mission president to the area. They didn't know where anything was. Um, and then at one point when I was like just laying there and they were working on me, I had my phone and someone texted and asked like what hospital I was at. And I just asked one of the nurses, I was like, Hey, what hospital are we at? And she told me and I sent it apparently to our state president. Um, and he then called my mission president. And when my mission president got that phone call at the hospital I was in, he was right outside the front door. Wow. Um, and he was able to walk in at a crucial point when they're like, sign the papers. Like, you got to sign your life away. You're going into the surgery. And I was like, I'm not signing it till my mission president comes and gives me a blessing. And they're like, you're so stubborn. You're going to die. And they were getting super frustrated. And at that very moment, my mission president walks in. Wow. A huge miracle for us, for sure. Well, and you talk about it. And I, I think it's funny because we all sort of do this, but you're like, you know, he doesn't know why he woke up early that morning. I can tell you why. He had to get his butt to a hospital and sign some papers and save your life. Exactly. 
Uh, so he's obviously there waiting. Mom and dad frantically getting on a plane and coming to to see you and 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 be there when you come out of surgery. So then, what do you remember? I would bet that there's some part of there where it just sort of disappears from memory. Yeah, actually, one of the other blessings is I have a lot of memory of it. I was very, very conscious. My mm. nurses were concerned how conscious I was. I was very much with it in the entire fight through the ambulance ride. You know, I woke up from surgery. You're supposed to take like six hours apparently after the surgery because I was in surgery for like six hours. Wow. So that would take me almost a day to recover. Um, and I was just sitting there in recovery like 30 minutes after surgery. And I woke up and started speaking in Spanish to the like hospital president. You know, it was just like concerning for them but yeah I definitely remember a lot of it now were you able to because you you'd mentioned that your uh, companion had suffered injuries as well were you able to sort of be together ish or was she in a separate place and you didn't see her once you guys kind of arrived at the hospital so once we arrived at the hospital we both um were kind of worked on like initially after we got off the ambulance um and she got wheeled off to a different room and I got went into surgery and so I didn't see her for a while um, but I saw her, like, once I got out of surgery, I went into the ICU, um, and she was there for a couple of days and I was there for almost like a week. Wow. Um, and so she got moved upstairs pretty fast. And after I got moved upstairs, they put our rooms next to each other so we could like kind of chat and visit each other and things, which was nice. It's so funny. I'm, as you've been talking, I'm sort of reminded of an experience that happened while I was on my mission. I'll tell you briefly. My companion got in a terrible uh, bicycle accident, ruptured his spleen, ripped it right in half. And uh, he, I don't think I've shared this in the cultural hall before. Uh, but so we go to the hospital and he had had a similar like medical incident while on his mission. And when he had that happen, he, um, got a blessing. So when he went to the hospital, he was completely fine. They didn't find anything wrong with him. So when he had the spleen incident, he's like, I know I'm in pain. I don't want a blessing because I want them to find what's wrong with me and fix it, which was sort of ridiculous. And then um, because they stressed so much about companionships staying together, like constantly inside of each other, because there have been some big problems in our mission prior to that. Like there he is in the ICU and there's not other missionaries for me to be with or other missionaries for him to be with and his mom or anyone in his family hadn't come yet. So I'm sleeping on the floor, the gross, disgusting floor of the ICU next to my companion because I'm like, I'm not leaving him. Looking back, completely ridiculous. But I just remember being like, I've got to stay right next. Yeah. So letter of the law. It's just ridiculous. We definitely asked about each other, like, how's this companion, do you know, how's she doing? How How's the other one doing? But, you know, when you're in such a strange situation like that, you kind of know that it's just like my best judgment because right. there's not really a book for what to do if you and your companion get stabbed. So. Well, yeah, <laughs> let's see. I was looking through the uh, the missionary guidebook and it, it doesn't have anything about what to do if your companionship gets stabbed. So I guess we'll we'll just sort of wing it. I appreciate you can joke around about it a little bit. So, so they come, your, your parents obviously come. What was that experience like being reunited with them? Um, honestly, I don't really remember. Hmm. I just woke up to the part that was hazy for me. The only part that was hazy was like the day or two, like after I got out of surgery, cause I was conscious after surgery and I saw them kind of just like walk into the room. I was like, Hey, what's <laughs> up? And then I was just kind of out of it for like, I was awake and I was talking, but I don't remember very much of it. Yeah. 
So, so then obviously um, some of the other parts of, of, of life kind of come into play, right? You've had this very serious uh, incident, this, this trauma, not to mention, um, you know, these health concerns, this near-death experience. Uh, then at some point in all this comes the decision of like, hey, so what's the next, what's the next thing for, for me? Am I going back out? Did they give you the option to? Was it you need to go home for a while while you recover? What was that like? Um, so I definitely was not even capable of staying out on the mission, um, unfortunately. You know, it's funny because you'll ask my friends and they'll be like, this is the only, only way you could have got Lauren to come home from a mission, like if she was literally dragged. Because yeah. uh, I, you know, when I went out on my plane, you know, in May or June or whatever it was, it was like, I'm not seeing my family for 18 months and that's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but after you know everything happened I considered it and I was like can I stay like that's the first thing I asked when I woke up with surgery they told me I just said am I going to be able to stay out on my mission um and I just wasn't functional I couldn't you know walk stand up move you know get dressed all of those basic things I couldn't eat um and so they deemed that no companion wants to be a caretaker and yeah. they stay home but I'm working on I'm working on getting back out right now in the process of it. So, so that so that is your hope to to you feel like you've rejuvenated, recuperated enough, and be able to go back out and serve. Exactly. Yeah, that's the goal. I have to be cleared by a lot of doctors and surgeons, as you can imagine. Uh-huh. Um, but once they all give the go ahead and the church reviews everything, then they're going to reissue a call. You know so that se- you know that seems a little crazy to some people, right? I I mean, really, like there are a lot of people that are like, Lauren, listen, you did it. You fought in the Lord's army, literally let yourself, you know, be done with it. But what what is it for you that that makes you um, compelled to want to want to go do it again? Um, I guess just a couple of things, just feeling, you know, you want to feel fulfilled with your mission like this. Like Satan's not going to tell me when my mission is done. You know, Mm -hmm. he's not going to choose for me. I'm going to choose when my mission is done and I'm going to serve my full time. Um, and I don't feel excused in any way from serving just because this happened to me. Um, and also just wanting, you know, to have the full experience. Like I prepared my whole life for my mission and I was only out basically just my training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just super excited to get back out there and to have this added experience too, I think to bear testimony with, um, I don't think God gave it to me to just sit around in my house. So hmm. I'm excited hmm. back out. Uh, how is your companion doing? She's doing excellent. Yeah. She didn't have, I had a lot of follow-up, obviously, I guess, with all of my cuts and things, but she has just been doing great. She had a lot more time than me out, so she just decided um, to return to college and things, and she's doing awesome. It seems like a pretty unique uh, companionship that the two of you would have, right? Um, Yeah, bonded for life, always Yeah, like there's not, I can't think of any experience I've ever had with another individual that would bond me closer than something like what you guys experienced. Um, I, I would give you the warning and this will mean some to some people listening and others will be like, I don't know what he's talking about, but, um, you know, watch out for, uh, Garrett Batty or some of these other people who will make a film about your mission, uh, that we'll be watching like the Saratov approach or something like that in the future to be able to tell the story of, of how you, um, not over, not only overcame this and overcame a, a life and death experience, but then went back out to serve in these United Sisters. And it, it seems like a pretty unique experience, one that that um, as you shared it with uh, with all of us, but particularly I just feel like with me that um, it, it's pretty remarkable the way that you that you have chosen to react to it. And 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 you probably 
I would think in your mind you probably just go, nah, that's just that's just how I am. That's just what I do. But I think I think that that there is a tremendous example that that you share. And I just want you to know that I certainly feel that and I'm sure others feel the same way. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So you wrote a little bit about this experience and um, I was touched by it. I'm wondering if maybe you could share either a favorite part or maybe a small paragraph of it, something that that um, you feel like maybe we haven't touched on or that you would you would feel um, excited to kind of share in, in talking about all this. Of course. Um, I think one of the biggest things that I included in my it was a Facebook post that I wrote. Um, for those who don't know, but my, one of my favorite parts, um, in talking about that with people is just that the love the heavenly father and Jesus Christ have for them. That's one of the biggest messages I've tried to take out of this. Um, because as I related before, um, when we were sitting there waiting for the ambulance to come in things and my companion was on the phone, I remember, you know, we were looking around and evaluating the situation and I saw that I had been stabbed through the middle of my hand. Hmm. Um, and so I had cuts on both sides through my palm. And you might think that that would be alarming, you know, to look down and see that not anyone's first choice, but it actually brought me so much peace as I was just sitting there and I instantly thought of Jesus Christ and I thought of, you know, similar marks in his hands. Um, and obviously his are incredibly greater than mine, but I just felt some sort of, you know, small connection that he was aware of me and I knew that I was going to be okay. You know, that it, it was his purpose. It was kind of Heavenly Father's sign that like, you know, everything's going to be okay. And, you know, this is going to be used to bring other people to Jesus Christ. Um, and as I related earlier, that kind of, you know, drew me through my experience in the hospital, always relying on the atonement to carry me when I literally physically couldn't take away the pain, you know, when I needed to walk and I couldn't move my legs. He helped me walk. He carried me through the pain. Um, he helped me sleep, you know, like all of these things is just a very, very real power of the atonement that came into my life. That's pretty remarkable. I was I was super touched by um by reading your words talking about that and you know just the opportunity to know that um that Christ knows us and to feel connected in sometimes the oddest of ways, right? Like some people may hear that story and be like, "Uh, I okay." But to it didn't ma- it doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what we think and we have that individual relationship with Christ and that we can find peace in the in those particular instances. Do you think that you will uh, go back to Houston or do you think maybe this is the chance where you can talk to President Nelson being like, hey, listen, pal, I wanted Paris, France originally. I did Texas like you asked. How about Paris now? Yeah, no, we actually just don't know yet. We're just waiting, you know, to see what the church says when I submit all my doctoral information. They'll decide if I return or if I will be assigned somewhere else. So is there a chance that you could not be reassigned? Yeah, I think if I just like asked them and I really wanted to go back to Texas and they thought that it was like okay and safe for me to do that they would send me back. I I, I guess I just mean by that, is there a chance that they could be like, no, you're done? You oh, can't... like with my entire mission or yeah. just going back? I don't think so. From everything I've heard, they've said that they're fine with me going back out as long as all my doctors approve it. That's great. Listen, I feel like you could have the pick of the world at this point. So although it seems like that's less inspiration and more destination, maybe consider it. I'm not I'm not going to be the boss of you. It's your life to lead, but it might be worth a consideration for sure. Thank you. Um crazy. And and yeah. and, and I I think also kind of inspiring because man, think of what God has in store for you. If it's like, "Hey, to prep you for whatever this thing is, 
I need you to experience all of these things that you've experienced so that either you can be strong enough or have the faith sured enough or whatever those things are. I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable in and of itself, the strength of character that you have to be able to make your way through it. Thank you so much. It's all because of Jesus Christ and his atonement. Uh, any, let me ask you this final thing. Timeline, do you know when you might be um, reassigned, when you can get through all that stuff? Is that coming like tomorrow or are we talking end of year? What's that look like? Yeah, we're looking at the end of year. Cool. That's our, because it'll take them a little bit to review everything. You know, like a normal call, it takes them a couple weeks or months maybe because it's a more complex case, you know, to figure out where they want me to go and what's going to happen. But they're thinking probably end of December, beginning of January. Will they send you an email similar to like when you got the original call that you'll gather the family around and have delicious food and, and then read it and cry? You know, people have asked me, and honestly, I don't know how it's going to go down. We're a little bit new to this, but we'll see. (laughs) Similar in the mission guidebook to what to do in case your companionship gets stabbed, there's not a how do they reissue a mission call after stabbing. So that's fair. That's a fair answer. Um, There are three questions that we ask uh, everyone who steps into the cultural hall. Uh, I'll answer one of them for you because we all know. The first question is, is, do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Uh, a missionary. You're called to be a missionary. Um, well, I was actually technically. You what's that? But I was released when I came home. So, so are, technically, are you right serving now. within a, a ward or any sort of uh, capacity at this point then? No, they're just asking me to get ready as fast as possible to go back out and trying to let me heal. So, If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? To be a missionary again. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Okay. Now last, last question. Uh, and I ask you to interpret this question, however you will, no right, wrong answers here. Um, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Mm, That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I guess I would just say like my heavenly father and Jesus Christ and my relationship with them. Because I think that gets you through anything, as I've you know seen with this experience and the love that they have for you. Everything is tied back to the love that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ have for you. Because because God loves us, He sent His Son Jesus Christ, and because Jesus Christ loves us, He died on the cross. And you know the church leaders have taught us that everything else in this gospel is just an appendage to that central part of Heavenly Father sending Jesus Christ to live, um, die, and atone for us. Yeah. Well, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen to it this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen to it next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show. Ow!